Thanks, Jen. Good morning. How is everybody today? Are we good? You're not going to harass me too much today up here? Give me a bad time? Ah, you need a little heckling, I think. Uh, this morning I'm going to continue discussing hope, which I started talking about last week, but uh, I got so much positive feedback from the Christmas statistics that I shared with you last week that I feel like maybe I should share some more information and tidbits with you about Christmas. Um, yeah, come on. How about that Christmas wreath? You know where your wreath comes from? I don't know if, you know, I mean, how true is everything you find on the internet, you know, who knows. But uh, one of the stories I read said that the Christmas wreath originated as a symbol, actually originated as a symbol of Christ, that the holly represented the crown of thorns, that Jesus wore at his crucifixion, and the red berries symbolized the blood that he had shed. And so when we see a wreath, we'll remember that he is the reason for the season. There you go. Tidbit number one. Do you know what else? Jingle Bells was written as a Thanksgiving song. Did you know that? Yeah. It was uh, One Horse Open Sleigh is what it was called. And it was actually a Thanksgiving song and then was made popular later um, as a Christmas song. And so if you actually listen to the words of the song, you kind of go, yeah, makes sense that this would actually have been something that was written for Thanksgiving. Uh, to go right with all your other Thanksgiving songs you sing, right? Uh, by the time the Puritans settled in Boston, we're talking in the 1600s, the mid-1600s, anyone caught making merry would face a fine for celebrating. It was illegal to celebrate Christmas in the United States before it was the United States, uh, back when the Puritans were settling. Actually, uh, because... Um, of Santa Claus and Saint Nick and the saints and the veneration of the saints of the Catholic Church uh, in the Protestant Reformation, they actually, you know, because there was a split then, um, the Protestants at first strongly rejected the idea of Saint Nicholas and therefore rejected the idea of Christmas. So the Protestants made Christmas illegal uh, in the 16th, 1600s. So there you go. It was so unimportant that after the Revolutionary War, uh, the first session of Congress began on December 25th, 1789. They didn't even celebrate it. It wasn't even a thing. Uh, it wasn't proclaimed a federal holiday for almost another hundred years. Uh, during World War II, you know, the Bicycle Card Corporation? Bicycle cards, you know. We, of course, you know, it was used to be against Christians didn't play cards either, right? Well, during World War II, Bicycle actually made gifts for the prisoners of war in Germany of the bicycle cards. And when you got those cards wet, they peeled apart and they revealed maps of the area around the prison camp for escape purposes. And they were a Christmas gift to the POWs during World War II. And lastly, I think we should talk about St. Nicholas a little bit. Since we talk about Santa Claus and how all this came to be, uh, St. Nicholas was a bishop. You know, and the Bible talks about a, a bishops and elders, you know, like we have elders in the church here. And he was a bishop or an elder, you could say, in uh, Asia Minor, in Lycia was the province. And so where Paul was a missionary in the centuries before, he, 
Nicholas was an elder in one of those churches that eventually was birthed out of there. And he was very generous. His parents were very wealthy and they had died and left him a huge inheritance. And he used that to support the poor uh, for many, many years. And uh, so one of the stories is, and, and who knows if this is true anymore, but... Um, there was a uh, father in the village with three daughters who was very poor, and so he couldn't afford a dowry. And you had to pay a dowry in order to marry off one of your daughters in, those, in that particular culture, and that's been true in a lot of cultures over the years. But he couldn't afford to marry off his daughters, and so what he supposedly did with the oldest daughter is he dropped a bag of money down the chimney at night to surprise the family. And supposedly they had hung socks there by the fireplace, and, and so the whole idea of stockings came about there. Well, the legend goes that the father, by the third daughter this was happening, he slept in the living room waiting for someone to drop money down his chimney so he could find out who it was, and he did, and he discovered it was Nicholas, the local bishop, who was sneaking and dropping money down his chimney. And so eventually he became a saint because of his generosity. He's actually the patron saint of children and the patron saint of sailors in the Catholic Church. So, pretty interesting story. Uh, He was also part of the Council of Nicaea. So, if you are into church history and understand what the Council of Nicaea was in uh, 325, uh, he supposedly was there. The reason we call him Santa Claus is because St. Nicholas was in Dutch is Sinterklaas. St. Nicholas, Sinterklaas. And then that got just transliterated to Santa Claus. So, there you go. Some tidbits for you. Yeah, interesting stuff. See, you can sound cool while you're drinking your eggnog around the fire with your family this holiday season and share your cool information, you know. I want to keep talking about hope. Uh, It's a subject we could cover for a long time because it's such an important part of the Scripture. It's such an important part of our message. And I want to begin again with Romans chapter 15, verse 13. The passage we've been anchoring to last week and this week, and it says this. May the God of hope, the God of hope. Paul finds hope so significant that he refers to God in this way. He is the God of hope. It isn't just some peripheral thing around God. He's the God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace couple of holiday words, as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, I mentioned this last week, and think about it again. Doesn't the idea of overflowing with hope sound good? Doesn't the idea of having a hope that's contagious sound good? To have hope in such a way that others are impacted and so that we have lots of it at our disposal in our difficult journey in this life. And it is difficult. And it will be difficult. But he is the God of hope. And in the midst of all of it can fill us with joy and peace for the journey. I want to, last week we talked about, you know, what does hope really mean? We talked about the Christmas story and these heroes of the Christmas story and why they had hope and what they had open, and we examine their stories a little bit, but I want to dive in more to you and I specifically today. Why do we have hope? Why should we have hope? Why does our message have hope? Is it a hope that we should be carrying into our relationships in the world around us? And I want to look at a few different aspects of that today. 
The first reason I want to talk about why we should have hope, why we do have hope, is that we anticipate that Jesus Christ will return to the earth. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for our sin on the cross, returns for us someday. We anticipate that. We're hopeful for that. It's something we look forward to, and it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, we can have joy and peace in our lives today is because someday our Messiah returns for us. Let's look at some of the scriptures. In Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, this is a story where Jesus left the earth. He died, he was resurrected, he appeared to many of his followers, he did some more teaching, he did some work with them for the days after his resurrection, which had to be just an amazing thing to be a part of. And it's why his testimony was so powerful, is there were so many witnesses to this, is why it it projected out into the world so well. And the, the, he ascends into, the, into heaven, and like he literally just rises off the earth. And he ascends into heaven, and his disciples and followers are standing there gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. When we read stories in the Bible, you know, we even talked about this in the 40 Days in the Word, the picture it method, the idea that when we read a passage of Scripture, put your imagination into gear, picture the situation, put yourself in their shoes. Just amazing things they witnessed. But also then to imagine what it must be like when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns to the earth in the same way in which he left. According to the scripture, there will be many significant things. As, as far as, as lightning in the, in the, what does he say, in the east is seen from the west or vice versa, Jesus says, that's what it will be like when he returns. The whole world will see. And it will be amazing. Got to use your imagination. Picture the possibilities. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Remember, we talk about the concept of hope. There's a, a, almost a tension to the idea of hope, and an eagerness, an anticipation. And we are eagerly waiting for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us that he didn't desert us, but he left with a purpose. He says, I must go to the Father, and the Holy Spirit will come. But also that he returns with a purpose, and not to deal with sin, but to retrieve, because that's dealt with, but to retrieve us, those of us who believe and are awaiting his coming. He's coming again to fulfill his purposes on earth. God's purposes will be fulfilled on earth. There's no question of whether or not we check all the boxes and everything happens in a certain way and everything goes right. He will return. He has promised us that. Such a reason for you and I to have hope. Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will be first to rise. After that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be 
with the Lord. The Bible refers often to this concept of trumpets in the end and the idea that when Jesus returns, it will be significant. It will be visible. It will be loud. He's returning for us. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared. It's training us and we wait for his appearing. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. We're to be a people of action. And being sober-minded, set your hope your anticipation, your expectation, your belief, fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is more grace coming. We have something to anticipate with the return of Jesus Christ. Something to put our hope in despite all the circumstances going on in our lives and around us. We anticipate and have hope for something that is coming. I do want to mention, these are four different authors of the Scripture that remind us and tell us this is a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. It's just a foundational, immovable component often articulated by the many writers of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is returning. Something for you and I to look forward to. Why do we look forward to that? Sometimes the Bible calls it the great and dreadful day of the Lord. God does return. He returns to judge the living and the dead. And so there's something significant to revere and honor in that. But one of the reasons that we look forward to the return of Christ is that you and I will be made new. We have a hope for the full redemption of our bodies. Paul is making an argument, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to study this further or examine more of some of what Paul has had to say about this, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole chapter. Really, Paul develops these thoughts about you and I being made new, you and I resurrecting. I mentioned it last week, but we coincidentally sang the same song this week where it talks about the stone being rolled away from Jesus' tomb. And we picture that day of his resurrection and why we celebrate Easter and all these things. And I just want to remind you that he went first because you and I go later. You, he's the first fruits. He's the first born in creation. The scripture refers to him in those terms. He exited the grave first to that new life that you and I will also exit our graves someday to this new life. Kind of a creepy, interesting thought of what it will be like. Again, use your imagination. The people rising to life at the time when Jesus returns. And Paul's making an argument about this because, you know, there's a, 
a lot of uh, humanistic type of philosophy all through the ages has dismissed, even the Jews struggled with this, the idea that the, there would be a resurrection. The Sadducees, part of the set, one of the sects that Jesus dealt with, they didn't believe there would be a resurrection, and Paul dealt with it in the churches all the time. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, For if the dead are not raised, Paul's making an argument here, then even Christ... Uh, Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Our faith is pointless without resurrection of the dead. There is no ultimate destination for it, nothing to hope in. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, which is a term they often use for those that have passed on, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's making the argument that there is resurrection. There has to be resurrection. Your faith is pointless without it. And if this, and if, and if this, whole, this whole faith that we follow is only meant for this life and everything we're experiencing in this life and all of the benefits that God gives us in this life, if that's it, that's pitiful. We have something so much more to look forward to. Apparently there was some sort of debate going on about resurrection. We could unpack that even further about this life only. When so often in our Christianity, the way we portray it and talk about it and live about it, it's like everything is about me now, my benefit now, what benefits me in the moment. And yet God's got such a bigger thing going on in the, on the scale of eternity. And there's a greater grace coming. We have a first fruits of the Spirit now. We have a first fruits of grace now. And there is a fulfillment and a fullness of it that's coming for us with new lives, new bodies. Let's look at some more passages about this. He goes on in verses 32 through 34 of 1 Corinthians 15. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Apparently Paul fought with beasts at Ephesus. Paul had a lot of trouble in his life. And we've talked about that in the past. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. What's Paul saying here? You know, what's the point? We've been living this life for what end? For what reason? Forget it. Let's just eat and drink and live our lives and die. Because there's no point if there's no resurrection of the dead. If there's nothing after this, if there's nothing to be gained from this faith, if our hope is, again, only in this life, that's pitiful. Let's just eat and drink and tomorrow we die. Whatever. Let's just live our lives because there's no point. There's nothing after this. He's making this argument. And, of course, we hear that argument in the world all the time. That nothing comes after this, so just live it up, right? Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You've probably heard that in other ways, right? Bad, bad company corrupts good character. Did your parents ever say that to you? Paul's saying that to these guys. Whoever you're allowing to have a voice in your life is corrupting your thinking. If you're allowing them to persuade you through whatever Greek logic and philosophy was going on in the church at that time or whatever Christians were teaching some sort of false or mitigated or watered-down doctrines, it was influencing their thinking, and Paul's challenging them. And then he says this. He gives them this kind of stern rebuke in verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul wasn't afraid to sternly rebuke for some of this thinking that was being allowed into the church and that they were beginning to be influenced by these other false doctrines. And Paul comes in and he throws down the guardrails. He says, no, wake up. 
That's not true. What's true? What's been taught here? The gospel we brought you. Pretty stern rebuke. Romans chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. And not only the creation, he's talking about the creation eagerly awaiting a transformation, a new creation. It's, it's, it's groaning, it's, it's expecting. Even creation itself is waiting. But he goes on to say, which is a fantastic chapter you should study. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's Paul talking about here? We're waiting. We're groaning even. Groaning kind of gives this idea that there's a tension. It's a little bit painful. But we have the Spirit and we're waiting for something. The adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So now we have a guarantee and a deposit that we will be saved. And we are adopted as children, but we're in process. And this process comes to culmination when our bodies are redeemed. For in this hope, we were saved. We were saved because we chose to believe this. We have faith that Jesus has done this on our behalf. That's where our salvation comes from. And we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies, the new bodies we get someday, that this broken and decaying and dying body will be replaced with a new one. For Who hopes for what he sees? And we talked about this last week. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're waiting and looking forward to. We call this glorification. If you study systematic theology, it's called doctrine of glorification. Our bodies will be glorified like his body someday. Jesus rose from the dead with this new, undying flesh. And you and I will have that someday. For if we are children, then we are heirs. Romans eight seventeen, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified. With him, that we will also be glorified with him. See, the fullness of our salvation is not yet realized. There's a hope. We're hoping, we're anticipating, we're believing for even a greater revelation of the grace and salvation of Christ when he returns and when we rise with our new bodies. What will they be like? I don't know. I was just visiting with a friend this morning who had surgery and had a chunk of bone removed from his leg and Kind of limping around for a while, sorting that out, right? Boy, it'll be nice when we get new bodies, right? I mean, let alone some new knees would be helpful. How about the whole thing? Undecaying, undying. See, sin brought death into our situation, brought decay into our lives. But when we resurrect, when we, when we are resurrected like him, we'll be like him. Can you imagine what that's like? I don't know. I, I think it'd be fun to maybe... Comb through the scriptures and see what Jesus was like in his resurrected form. Sometimes they didn't even recognize him. And he definitely walked through walls and stuff like that. So, I don't know. We'll see what it's like. What an amazing thing that we can have hope in. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. Paul's in, in this argument about resurrection. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I don't know about you. That is a hopeful message. That is something we can have faith and hope in. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We've all been robbed and affected and impacted by the egregious power of death. 
And death is a result of sin in creation. We need a new creation. We need a new body. We need that sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf in order that we can step into the fullness of what God has for us. What a joy to look forward to, that day when death is defeated. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll continue on here. I think this is verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall, be, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Well, we sure feel the sting in this life, don't we? And we face it, and it's sad. And yet, this is our hope. This is what we look forward to. This is our message for the world. This is our message for those around us. There is new life coming. There is immortality. There is the imperishable that we will put on someday. And when I stop and I think about that and I consider the present sufferings of life, I think it's all worth it. It will all be worth it. We won't even, it, it, we won't even remember the former things. It will be so far behind and such a distant memory. That increases my hope. And I hope it does yours. The earth will transform. We will transform. What will it be like? Don't underestimate the height from which creation has fallen. When you read the Old Testament and you look at the Garden of Eden and you look at that passage of time from Eden to Noah, we really don't have any idea what it was like. We, we have a short story about Adam and Eve, but we have no idea what creation really functioned like in those days. We can only put it in terms that we understand today. I, this is nothing biblical, but just something that crosses my mind. You know, they say you only use like whatever percentage of your brain, some of us less than others, right? Perhaps, could it have been in the Garden of Eden that we used 100% of our brains? Could it be that all of us, you know, that imperishable state, that relationship with God, the knowledge and information, the way creation functioned without decay and death, how did it even work? There was no circle of life before there was death. What was it like? Stretch your imagination. That's what God has for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's what we have to look forward to. That's why we have hope. That's why in the middle of difficult circumstances and situations and the highs and lows and everything that goes on in the world, it will be nothing compared to what God has for those that love him. 
Okay. But we have hope for today. This is what I want to focus on now. Okay, we, we, we have a future hope. It is the most significant thing. It's in that hope that we're saved, the hope of the salvation of Jesus Christ and his return. That's, where, that's how we're saved because we believe in that. But even in that, we also have hope for everyday life today as well. And I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait. But we do have the first fruits, which means a lot for us. And the Bible teaches us a lot about the idea that we have the first fruits and how that's important. When we give our lives to Christ, there's a deposit of the Holy Spirit that comes into us. The Holy Spirit becomes a part of our lives. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit in this life now today. And even in those things, we're hopeful. Even though they're just a, an inkling, even though it's just a deposit, a partial, in anticipation of the full that's to come, we still have hope in this life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Even though this body dies, you are being transformed internally in your mind, in your soul. What a hopeful thing. What good news that even now today, in this life, I can transform. I can live differently. I can think differently. My soul can be healed. My body can be healed. My mind can be healed. All these benefits that God has given me, even today, I can have hope even in this life for the things of God. Why? Because he's a part of my life even now. He's a part of your life today. His spirit is with you and in you. If we have that spirit, then we have a lot to anticipate even now. Transformed lives means that we have the power to live differently. Many of you have experienced massive transformation since you gave your life to Christ. What he rescued you from. How he's raised you up. How he's grown you. We can have forgiveness even now from our sin. When we ask God to forgive us, our conscience becomes clear in a moment now. I get to experience that today. That's something I look forward to and anticipate and am glad for and is something that I can help other people also find in this life even. We have a message of hope. There's something to look forward to. Many of us and many people in the world need relief just from the guilt of our sin. And our consciences need cleared so that we can walk in this purity and this freedom that God has for us. And he has it for you today. And he has it for those who have not yet heard today. And they see it in your life. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Are you really free from accusation? Are you experiencing that life that's free of accusation? Are you accusing yourself? Are you allowing the accuser to accuse you? Or are you walking in the forgiveness that he's given and offered to you? Our gospel really isn't complicated at the end of the day. Such a powerful, simple hope. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from, here we go, the hope held out by the gospel. What's the gospel doing? 
It's holding out hope to creation, to you, to the people in your lives, friends, family, loved ones, people you've never met, people on the street. The gospel is, I can just picture, is just standing there holding out. There is hope. You have something to anticipate. You have something to look forward to. You can be free. You can be forgiven. You can put on immortality someday. Is that our message? That's our message. That's us. And in many ways, the way that we live our lives, we're holding out something to the world. Is it hope? When they talk to you, when they look at your Facebook posts, when you're interacting at work, even when you're going through confrontation, are they seeing the hope held out by the gospel? Or what are they hearing and seeing? It's, man, it's challenging. You and I are the ambassadors of this hope. We're the carriers of this message. We're the image of this on earth even today. That's who we are. I'm going to skip to Romans chapter 8. Shreya, that next verse. There is therefore now no, no, none. Not a zilch, zip. None. Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. It's gone. I hope that excites you. I hope that makes you go, I have a lot to be hopeful for and thankful for in this holiday season. Because this is my heritage. It's my inheritance. It's mine. No condemnation. I'm free of that burden. And because of that, one day I will put on the imperishable. I want to come back to Romans chapter 15, verse 13 again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our hope in the future informs our present. We can experience joy and peace right now. These are ours. This is our inheritance in this hope because we have hope. But why do we lose our joy? Why do we lose our peace? I should, I should have a big mirror right here and just preach to myself here, right? And we all can identify with that. But when I stop and I evaluate the whole, I, I can have joy in this moment, even though it's difficult. I can have peace in the middle of the chaos because I understand something greater than the now, in Christ, that he can fill me with joy and peace because he's the God of hope. And when I put my hope in him, my anticipation, my trust, those kinds of things, I can be filled to overflowing and I can experience those lovely, lovely words, joy and peace. And we know that for those who love God, all things, we saw this last week, I hope it bothered you a little bit this week. I hope you thought about this. If not, I hope you do this week. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's you. That's you. Does that give you hope? Does that encourage you? Does that stir your joy and peace in this holiday season? As bearers of the gospel, this is also our responsibility. You know, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. 
He didn't say go to church on Sunday and enjoy messages so you can be comfortable. No, I want you to make disciples of everyone. We are on a mission. And our mission is to hold out this hope through the gospel. That through the gospel message in our day-to-day lives, the way we live, the way we communicate, the way we interact, we're holding this out for those God wants to save. Do we take that seriously? Is that a part of our lives? Is that how we're approaching our Christianity? Or is there some other way? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You smell like something. What do you smell like? Man, I smell hope on you. Do we smell like hope? Do we smell like joy and peace? Do we smell like a people that's going to rise to imperishable and immortal, immortal bodies someday? Do we smell like a people who understands that this is a test? This is temporary? That we have a hope in the very God of hope and that we can overflow with a sense of hopefulness about what's ahead? Would you stand, please? Be challenged. Be provoked. Be thoughtful. Think about these things. Challenge yourself. Evaluate yourself. Don't evaluate your neighbor or your spouse or your kids. Look in the mirror and evaluate yourself according to the word of God and see how God might want to stir your hope and challenge you and give you peace and give you joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is powerful. It's alive. It's active. It's sharp. It discerns our thoughts. It discerns our motives and intentions when we look into your word. And God, we are so grateful that having hope and having joy and having peace is not something we can earn, but something that we receive by believing in you. And so, Father, we believe in you. We trust in you. You are our hope. You are our salvation. Nothing else could be that. And because of your plans and your purposes and how you are orchestrating the events of time to bring it to a very specific and ordained outcome, we can have hope. We know who wins. We know how this ends. We have no reason to despair. We have no reason to fear. God, we honor you today and we thank you. Help us to be a light Help us to be a fragrance that smells like hope, like joy, like peace to the people in the world around us. That we might be accurate ambassadors and reflections of your heart on the earth. We praise you and we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.